thankful again for the opportunity to meet with you this morning. I pray the Lord will be with us and bless our time together as we look into His Word. One of the difficulties of preaching at a lot of different churches and not preaching at the same church every Sunday is uh, if you're not like Brother Vince and keep everything in a nice little notebook, you lose track of what you've preached, where, and when. Uh, so I want to apologize if I've already preached this sermon to you. I don't think I have, but I may have preached on the text. But regardless, the other blessing is that when you don't preach from outlines or notes, you never preach the same sermon twice. So I trust the Lord will be with us and will direct his word in a way that will be a blessing to us uh, whenever we read his word. It it can't help but be a blessing if our if our hearts are centered upon him and we're seeking understanding. So so bear with me if I repeat some of the same things I've shared with you before. I do think the last time I was with you one of the concepts we talked about was the New Testament use of the Old Testament. Uh that also might not have been here, but in in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, one of the lessons presented is Peter talks about how the scriptures were given to Old Testament saints, but as they sought after and sought understanding of the coming of Christ and they sought lessons in their teaching for themselves, it was revealed to them Peter says that not unto them, but unto us, did they minister. We can find that if you turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. The apostle writes of it this way. He says, of Jesus Christ, uh, beginning in verse 8, whom having not seen ye love, and whom though now ye see him, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, Searching what or at what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into." This scripture, if no other, clearly states that the Old Testament is of use in the New Testament church. The Old Testament prophecy was ministering to us, that is, us of the New Covenant, us today. Some other thoughts that are reflected in scripture that that reinforce that point can be found in various places. In Hebrews chapter 11, we read of the faithful saints of Old Testament times, and, and to them it was revealed that they would not obtain what we have obtained. You can read that in Hebrews, again, the last verses of, of Hebrews chapter 11, uh, there the apostle writes and says, uh, of whom the world was not worthy, that is all of those who were faithful, though they were destitute, afflicted, and tormented. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, 
God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. The idea is that the Old Testament matters. It's valuable. It's important. And our understanding of the Old Testament by God's grace is is shaped by how the New Testament uses the Old Testament scripture. The reality is any of us left to our own devices with the Old Testament scripture alone might come to vastly different conclusions about what it's speaking of, about what the prophets were talking about. And whenever we consider prophecy, we do have to realize that there may be an immediate application with a secondary or maybe even primary application that's, that's future. And that's all, that's all brought into that thought that Peter is inspired to express when he says they sought after the understanding of the salvation and the grace that was to be revealed. And it was revealed to them that it was not to them, but to us that they did minister. So this morning we looked at a text found in the Galatian letter, and in that text the apostle did some really interesting things with some Old Testament scriptures and Old Testament lessons. For those of you who weren't with us uh, in our earlier service this morning, uh, the apostle writes in Galatians chapter 4, and he refers to the story of Abraham and the birth of Isaac. He talks about his first child, Ishmael, who was a child who was a child of a handmaid, of a bondwoman, and his child, Isaac, who was a child of promise. And he, he rehearses that story with which no doubt the at least the Jewish believers were familiar and then in the midst of explaining that this was an allegory for the old and new covenant, the new covenant being the children of promise, the old covenant being Jerusalem, the natural Jerusalem, the natural Israel, he then refers back to the prophet Isaiah. And in verse 27 he says, Jerusalem which is above is free, which is the mother of us all, for it is written, Rejoice thou barren that bearest not, Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not, for the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. The New Testament provides context for the Old Testament, provides some interpretive clues for the Old Testament, tells us how we're to view Old Testament scripture and how it might apply to our own experience, to our own existence. So this morning I want to turn back to Isaiah chapter 54, which is where this text is drawn from. Isaiah 54 begins, Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Now if you put yourself in the place of the Old Testament saints to whom Isaiah was given this prophecy and to whom he spoke the words of this prophecy, you probably would find yourself very confused. Lost, maybe. And no doubt the people who heard it were confused as to its meaning. And we could certainly explore and consider and come up with some initial applications, understand what he might have been speaking at in the time that he wrote. But the New Testament gives us a clue and says this is talking about the New Covenant. This is talking about the existence of the children of God in the Gospel age and the way that God is going to bring 
forth children by the work of his Holy Spirit and how he's going to bring them to light. He's going to manifest them through the proclamation of his gospel. And notice the concept here. Sing thou barren that didst not bear. It seems contrary to nature. Rejoice, be happy. Rejoice though your heart's desire hasn't been met. Though you're barren, though you haven't brought forth any children. Break forth into singing for that which has not yet been manifest. Cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. Why? Because more children belong to the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. The Lord speaks that which seems contrary to nature. And indeed it is. The prophecy continues on because the children of the desolate are more than those of the married wife. Enlarge the place of your tent. Make your tent larger. Stretch forth the curtains of your habitations. Make a big house because of a lot of children. Thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles. And make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed. He says, thou that is barren, that according to nature has no children, you're going to grow. And you're going to prosper, and God is going to work a work in you, and you need to prepare for that work. And then in verse 4, fear not. This chapter is a chapter about rejoicing in spite of evidence to the contrary. And it's about being without fear even though the enemies are strong. And this chapter, applied as the New Testament applies us, tells us today where we live that we don't need to be discouraged and we don't need to despair. Why? Because God is on his throne and God is working according to his perfect will. And we don't have to understand it, but we are called upon to believe it and to trust him to do his work in his time and in his way. And in doing so, we're to depend upon him for guidance, for direction, and for peace. So let's go on and read through the chapter. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed. Neither be thou confounded, that is, confused or overturned, for thou shalt not be put to shame. For thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood any more. For thy maker is thy husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. And thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. Notice the message here, and again the application that Peter is, I mean that Paul rather is given for it in the Galatian letter. You are a widow. You are barren. You have no hope. Why? Well, in, in the day that, that Paul was writing to the Galatians, it was a day when there was a separation from their identity as, as Jewish people, as, as Israelites. And there was a coming in of the Gentiles and there was a confusion about where their identity was found, where their hope was to be found. Things were being overturned and they were being confused. And in that day, Peter, I mean, Paul rather, is, is given this message for him. The message is this. God is at work and the children of the barren, of the widow, of the one without 
a husband, they're more than those of the married wife. The future is brighter than the past. How can this be? Here the the term widow is invoked. You've lost your husband and you have no hope for the future. But he says, don't be discouraged. You're not going to be ashamed. Why? Because your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Your husband is greater than any former love affair. He's greater than anyone that you once rejoiced in. And that's something we need to understand as believers in Jesus Christ today. Jesus Christ has called us. He's quickened us. He's brought us to himself. And our hope in Christ is greater than the hope that is in the world. And that's why he that in us who is greater than he that is in the world is the one we need to cling to and we need to follow and we need to serve. And our hope needs to be in him. Because if not, we'll look back to the past. We'll try to understand things the way we used to understand them. And again and again in the New Testament scripture, the idea is presented, don't go back to what you once were. Paul reiterates it in his letter to the Ephesians, in his letter to the Galatians, in his letter to the Colossians. Why? Because it's important. Don't walk the way you once walked, according to the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air. Don't walk the way you once walked, in your lusts of your flesh and in the pride of your life. Don't walk that way. Why? Because you've got a husband who is there with you, who is the Lord of hosts. That's his name. Your maker is your husband. He's called Calls you for his own pleasure. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, thy Redeemer, the one who bought you back out of bondage, the one who bought you for this freedom. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth, when thou wast refused, saith thy God. This verse alone calls upon us to consider our past without Christ. When we were, as Paul writes in another place, without God in the world. What was our hope? What was our future? What was our expectation and what did we receive? I believe the last time we were together we talked about that. How there was nothing to be gained. We, we wasted our efforts. We wasted it and found nothing for it. In Hosea, this is brought out. And in the book of Haggai, where we visited together a month or two ago, so clearly, you've, you've labored for money, you've labored for wages, you've put it into a bag with holes and it's gone. Where's your hope? Where's your future? The prophet writes and he says, God called you as a woman forsaken. Your former lover, your former husband, what did he get for you? What did he provide for you? He provided nothing. Emptiness, desolation. Sing, O barren. Why? Because now you have a real husband. Now you have a real hope and a real future, a real expectation. The gospel doesn't call us to a life without hope, a life of misery. It calls us to a greater hope, a greater expectation, a greater future. The gospel calls us to something truly glorious. Relationship with Jesus Christ and shows us His promise. The Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken, grieved in spirit, a wife of youth, when thou hast refused, saith thy God. You were refused. So often as Christians we talk about what we've given up to follow Jesus Christ. And if we can even say that, it shows we don't understand 
what the gospel promises. We don't understand who Jesus really is. How can we talk about sacrificing for Jesus Christ? When Jesus Christ gave his all for us and gives to us all things, there's nothing we've left that has any value at all. Because there's no value in this world apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and his word and his promises and his love. You were forsaken. You were refused. For a small moment, Have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. For a small moment have I forsaken thee. The reality of the Christian life is that there are times when we may feel forsaken. There may be times when we don't have the assurance of what's to come. There may be times when the Lord's presence seems afar off. For a small moment have I forsaken thee. In those moments when we feel to be forsaken. In those moments when his presence is not abundantly felt. In those moments when things don't go the way we hoped that they would. Moments of loss. Moments of sorrow. When loved ones that we count on pass away and we don't understand why. When churches with whom we had close fellowship and affection fly apart because of political ideas and the pride of human hearts and relationships are broken and we're discouraged. What then? For a small moment have I forsaken thee. But with great mercies will I gather thee. When Jesus Christ, after three years of preaching his gospel and declaring that he would suffer, that he would bleed, that he would die, that he would be raised again, did exactly what he said, was nailed to a cross, and before his apostles' eyes was seen to die, was put in a tomb, discouragement set in, and the the apostles didn't know what to do. They were crying, they were grieving, they were saying, I go a-fishing. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. You might not see the Lord's presence today, but the Lord is here. And His mercies, they're not gone forever. His mercies are right ahead. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath, I hid my face from thee for a moment. But with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. Well, that's a tough one. In a little wrath, I hid my face from thee. God's wrath? What a terrible thing. It's no wonder we're commanded to pass the time of our sojourning in fear. Why? Because God is a God of wrath. But in the Hebrew letter, we're reminded that whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. 
And we're going to be disobedient children, but we're still children. And we're going to stray from the path of righteousness, but we're still children. And God's wrath may be felt for our sin for a moment. But with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee. What's the basis of this mercy? Everlasting kindness, he says. I'll have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. Why? Because he's redeemed us from all of our sin. Because his wrath can't abide upon us. Because our sin has been paid for by our Redeemer, our Lord, our husband. My mercy is upon thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. God says, my wrath is like the waters of Noah. As I have sworn that the waters of Noah should be no more, should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. What's he saying? He's saying, my wrath will not abide forever. I'll not utterly destroy you, even though you sin. This is a concept that is addressed in New Testament scripture as well. You remember Paul to the to the young man Timothy. <coughs> what does he say? He says he cannot deny himself. If we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. I've sworn as I swore to Noah. When you look up and see a rainbow, here's your New Testament context for it. God put a bow in the sky saying, I'll no more cause a flood to come upon the earth and destroy all life. Never again. That's the covenant with Noah. What's the covenant with you? I'll never allow my wrath to be upon you forever. I'll never destroy you. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy upon thee. What did we say earlier today? We said our identity is not found in the things that we do. Thank God. Because our best doings don't measure up. They don't measure up to the calling. Be ye holy as I am holy. As the Lord your God is holy, so be ye holy. It doesn't work. But our identity is found in covenant, in Jesus Christ. It's found in who he is, not in ourselves. He says, the mountains shall depart, the hills shall be removed. There's coming a day when the earth itself is going to be melted. It's going to be burned up. It's going to be folded up as a vesture. It's going to be transformed. The mountains are literally going to flatten. The hills are going to be removed. But in that day, the kindness of the Lord will still be yours. His mercy will still be upon you. 
What a blessing that is to realize because in that day when God returns in all of his glory, when the Lord sits upon his throne and Jesus Christ stands as judge of all the earth, he's going to look upon those for whom he died. He's going to gather together his sheep on his right hand and what's he going to say to them? Come ye blessed of my Father, enter in. Enter in. Why? Because I only see the work that I've done in you. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick and in prison, you visited me. When did we do this, Lord, they ask. As much as you did it to the least of these, my children, you did it unto me. The mercy of God is seen on that day. The mountains shall depart, the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. Why? Because I am your maker and I am your redeemer. So the application really begins in verse 11. God says, my kindness and my mercy will never depart. O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest, and not comforted. Well, who's that? That's you. That's me. Thou afflicted, tossed with tempest and not comforted. When you believed, when you first believed, did you believe that following Jesus Christ would mean you'd have no more doubts, no more fears, no more tempests, no more troubles? If the gospel came to you with that promise, that was no gospel. It was a lie. And the faith of so many has been overturned because they were promised something that God never promised in his word. The promise is found here. My mercy, my peace, my kindness will ever be yours. O thou afflicted, Tossed with tempest and not comforted. Jesus Christ said what to his disciples? He said, if you follow me, you're not going to have a place to sleep at night because the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. He said, you're going to have, if you follow me, If you lose houses, lands, sisters, brothers, mothers, fathers, for my sake and the gospels, you'll receive a hundredfold. Fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers, houses, lands. Eternal life with affliction. With affliction. O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest. Tossed. About. It's not easy living in a world that's not your home. And it's not easy living after truth in a world filled with lies. And it's not easy proclaiming the truth of God's word in a world that hates God and his word. And the tempest will toss you about. The Apostle Paul makes reference to this concept. If you remember, he says, Be not tossed about with every wind of doctrine, with every teaching, by the cunning devices of Satan, 
Don't be tossed about. Tossed with tempest. And not comforted. Sometimes there's very little comfort. By God's grace, he's given the churches of Jesus Christ in this world for believers to come together and to comfort one another, to edify one another. Because the world beats us down. We're here to build one another up, to provide comfort one to another. But sometimes we stand alone. Sometimes there's no one to comfort us. What then? We always refer to that easy example. Paul said, I was forsaken by everyone. All men forsook me and no one stood with me. But the Lord didn't forsake me. What does the scripture say here? Thou afflicted, tossed with tempest and not comforted. Behold, I will lay thy stones with fair colors and lay thy foundations with sapphires. I'll make thy windows of agates. Thy gates of carbuncles and thy borders of pleasant stones. It's interesting to note the description here is so close to the description of that city in Revelation. So close to the description we envision of heaven itself. But he says, I'll do this with you in your state of discouragement, of affliction. I'll show you my presence. I'll show you the city of God. And all thy children shall be taught of the Lord. We can't read this statement without thinking of the verse we quoted earlier today from Jeremiah 31. They'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. You'll no more teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying know the Lord. It's not your job to make people know the Lord. They'll all know me. And this is the key to why the children of the desolate, of the barren woman, are more than those of the married woman. It's not our works that bring children into the family of God. But God does that by His own grace. All thy children shall be taught of the Lord. And great shall be the peace of thy children. Great shall be the peace of thy children. Why? Because God says, I'm going to dwell with them. I'm going to dwell in them. I'm going to communicate myself to them. So though you're afflicted, though you're tossed with tempest, though you're tossed about in a world that is unfriendly and there's no comfort to be found there, he says, I will be your comfort. I'll be your sustainer. I will build you as a city of God. And your children, your children will be blessed with my presence, with my peace. In righteousness shalt thou be established. In righteousness shalt thou be established. The church of Jesus Christ is placed in the world by his appointment, for his purpose, established in his righteousness. If you want an Old Testament text for New Testament church discipline, this is it. It will be established in righteousness. And the New Testament lays that principle forth. Righteousness matters. Again, not as the Galatians sought it, not through a rigid list of rules to follow and keep, but through a commitment to being conformed to the person and character of Jesus Christ. A freedom, a liberty to serve Him in truth. You're established in righteousness. 
The apostle in the Ephesian letter said this, You were created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that you should walk in them. You're established in righteousness. In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near thee. You say, wait a second. He's addressing this to thou afflicted, thou tempest-tossed. You've got enemies in the world, and we've got enemies. So how can he then say you're not going to be oppressed? You're going to be far from oppression. The answer is this. He doesn't say you're not going to be oppressed. He says you're going to be far from oppression. He doesn't say you're not going to have enemies. He says you're going to be far from fear, from terror. You shall not fear. Terror shall not come near thee. Why is that? Is it because there are no enemies? No, quite the contrary. Behold, they shall surely gather together. Oh yes, they'll gather together. I read this verse and I think of that that New Testament text in Acts chapter 4. When the enemies were gathering against the church in Jerusalem and they had arrested Peter and John for preaching the gospel and they had threatened them if they spoke any more in the name of Christ, they would kill them. And killings were coming. Soon the, the deacon, the preacher Stephen, was going to be stoned to death and James, the brother of John, was going to be beheaded and people were going to die for the sake of the gospel. And the church gathered together there in prayer. And they said what? They said, Lord, surely, surely, according to your word, the kings of the earth stood up. They gathered together against your son to do whatsoever thy will, thy word appointed before to be done. And now behold their threatenings. See how they gather together against us and give us boldness that we can stand. Give us boldness, give us strength in the face of this oppression. Here he says, they surely will gather together, but not by me. Not by me. Not by my appointment for your destruction. Not with my support. Not with my encouragement. They'll gather together, but not by me. Whosoever shall gather together against thee shall fall for thy sake. Ultimately, God is going to be victorious in every battle. They may gather together, yea, they will gather together. And there are enemies on every hand. Enemies of the church of Jesus Christ, enemies of the people of God, enemies of our soul. And they gather together. But God says, I'm not on their side in this conflict. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 says what? If God be for us, who can be against us? And the enemies may be strong, but as the hymn says, we'll go on, we'll go on. Why? Because they may gather together, they will gather together, but not by me. Whoever shall gather together against thee shall fall for thy sake. For thy sake. God says, if they gather against you, my bride, my church, my people, I will destroy them. Why? For your sake. Because I love you. Remember, the whole context here, he says, I am your husband. You are my bride. I love you. I've obligated myself to you. 
Whosoever shall gather together against thee shall fall for thy sake. Behold, I have created the smith that bloweth the coals in the fire, and that bringeth forth an instrument for his work. And I have created the waster to destroy. In verse 5, he said, thy maker is thy husband. Here he reminds us, I'm the maker of all things. I'm the creator. I made the smith that blows the coals in the fire. The blacksmith, the one who makes the hot fire in his forge, that shapes the plowshare, that shapes the sword. The one who makes the instrument to go forth and destroy I not only made the instruments, I made the maker of those instruments. And I have created the waster to destroy. Those plagues of locusts and grasshoppers that decimate the crops, that destroy the living of the farmers, the waster, the disease that destroys flesh, cancer, other terrible diseases. God says, I made those things. I'm intimately familiar with destruction and everything that is formed against you. I know. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment Thou shalt condemn. There's no time like the present for this scripture to be applied in the church of Jesus Christ. The enemies do abound and they gather together. And sin is present on every hand. And Satan is very real. But the Lord, the maker of all things, is on the side of his people. And his promises are sure. And he says the weapons that will be formed, they're not going to prosper. The enemies that come against us will be destroyed. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn. Going back over to the 8th chapter of the Roman letter, he talks about enemies that we may have occasion to fear. He says in verse 33 of Romans 8, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who's going to speak against you in judgment? It's God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? That declares your judgment? Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who's even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who's going to accuse you? God says you're just. 
who's going to condemn you. Christ has declared you righteous. And who's going to execute that judgment? Who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Any of these things that we might have occasion to fear, are they going to separate us from Christ? Absolutely not. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Another Old Testament text brought to vivid application right here, right now. They'll rise up against us. They may seem to destroy us. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. I'm persuaded neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from his love. That's what he says here in this chapter of Isaiah. The mountains shall depart, the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you. Every tongue that shall rise up against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn. Why? Because you have been made in God, kings and priests. You've been given the authority, the authority to judge, the authority to declare, because you have been given the truth that is in God's word. This, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. This Old Testament scripture, given by Isaiah during the reign of the wicked and awful king Manasseh, is a declaration for the people of God for all time. What? God knows what he's doing, even when we can't sort it all out, even when we're tossed by tempest, even when we're confounded. We can trust him. We can trust in his word. His word has the answers. And those answers... We don't need to be afraid to speak, to declare as truth. And that is why we need to be grounded in his word. It's why we need to embrace his word. It's why we need to memorize his word. It's why we need to understand his word. It's why he's given us the Bible, the Old and New Testament. And he's given us a word that interprets itself. And applies it to our very real situation, our very real lives. This isn't make-believe, and it's not a history book alone. And it's not a book that's old-fashioned, that's past its time. It's a book with relevance today. Because it's the Word of God, and guess where God is? God is everywhere, and that includes right here, right now. 
And his purposes don't change because he doesn't change. And his love doesn't change because he doesn't change. And when Jesus Christ, against the will of his disciples, and against everything that made sense to them, said to Peter, put away your sword. And went to the cross without resisting. And said to Pilate, as the kings of the earth gathered together against him to do what they thought was their will. You could have no power over me, except it were given thee of my Father, which is in heaven. And said, no man taketh my life from me. And then laid down his life on the cross. He did that with you, his children, upon his heart, upon his mind. And he paid the price, not for all mankind, but the price for me. The price for everyone whom he individually purchased. And he's given you a heritage. The heritage of those who fear his name. The heritage of the servants of the Lord. And he's given you righteousness. Not a righteousness based in your own ability or your own works. Not a righteousness that's something tangible that that you can purchase. But a righteousness is so much greater than that that any human can attain. A righteousness that is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Their righteousness is of me. And they'll be established in righteousness. Born of the Spirit of God. That incorruptible seed. There is something imparted that cannot be taken away. Something that compels a desire for service, a desire for obedience, that says to the gospel, yes, I believe that is truth. And I want to serve you. And a work that's germinated in the soul of a child of God in regeneration is brought forth through the work of the Spirit in sanctification for the remainder of that individual's life. And that sanctification of the Spirit, that is a hard and difficult experience. It's a road filled with trial and affliction, a road filled with suffering and confusion, a road filled with misdeeds and repentance and sorrow and mourning, a road that is filled with crying and bitter tears. Going back again to that 8th chapter of Romans, he describes the child of God in that sanctification journey as one who can't even express in his suffering his prayers, but rather just, just expresses groanings That cannot be uttered. But the Spirit understands those groanings and He hears and He responds and He interprets and God hears. And we know 
We know that all of that suffering and all of that agony and all of that confusion, we know that all things work together for good to them who love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. Why? Because it's His purpose and you're called according to His purpose. He's done all things for you. He spared not His Son How shall he not with him freely give you all things? Thou afflicted, tossed with tempest, and not comforted, your comfort is coming. Your comfort is found in what? His purpose, his power, his glory. The knowledge, your righteousness, it's of him, saith the Lord. So what do you do? Sing. Sing, O barren. Rejoice. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. Because God's purpose, it has prevailed. And it will prevail. You know, with each generation, with each century that progresses from the days of the apostles, we have greater visibility into that claim, into that reality. For every generation, they said, this is the end of the New Testament church. These Christians are going to die out. They can't continue. And what's happened? The church has continued on. Why? Because as Luther's hymn says, a mighty fortress is our God. The enemies, yeah, they're strong. They're great. But... We go on. Why? Because God is our husband. And no weapon that is formed against us will prosper. The scripture doesn't paint for any particular generation, for any individual person, A picture of ease or of pleasure or of freedom from trials. But for all the family of God, it paints a picture of glorious, triumphant peace. And that's something that will be experienced. For some of us, it will be experienced in a life lived with suffering. In a life lived on the walls of Zion, declaring truth to a people who will not hear it, experienced as a peace which passes understanding. In a time when we should be overturned and our confidence should wane, when we are emboldened and strengthened to stand. For others, it may be experienced as a calm ability to live in peace in a world at turmoil and simply in an obscure existence to serve God quietly and peaceably. And what a great experience that might be. For some, it will be experienced when they see the Lord descending 
from heaven. They behold him with their eyes. And they're caught up together with those who sleep to be with him in the air. But for all of us, for all of us, we look for his appearing. And that day is coming. And in that day, there will be no more sin. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more confusion. Then we'll know even as we are known. And then all of these promises that we read about, all of these promises which sometimes seem, even yet, as though we're looking through a glass darkly, they'll be crystal clear. And will not be ashamed. I don't know if you noticed it, I didn't point it out, but three times in that chapter he said, your shame is going to be no more. There will no more be any shame. Why? Because that which we have professed and believed and been questioned for and doubted, and that that we've argued over or we've disagreed about or we've misunderstood, it'll all be cleared up. And there will be complete vindication, complete justification of our faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is triumphant. He is victorious. Thanks be to God who giveth us the victory in Christ Jesus. So sing, rejoice. Let your voices be heard in the streets. Why? Because we have nothing to be ashamed of. Because our righteousness is established in the person of Jesus Christ. And flee, flee from sin. Get rid of that old past, those old lovers, those old husbands. Because your maker, he'll not reject you. He's claimed you as his own. And if you're feeling the wrath of God because you've departed from him and you've lived a life that's alien to your calling and your life in Christ, then draw near to him. Because... The mountains may be removed. The hills may be torn down. But his mercy and his love, his kindness toward you, it won't depart. Like that prodigal who departed from his father's house and wasted his living and all the goodness of his father. And finally broken, he crawls back. The father meets him and embraces him and places his ring on his hand. His mercy, His mercy abides forever because He is your Redeemer. He's your husband. Thank you for your attention this morning. I pray the Lord would apply His Word and make make some of what I've said make sense to you.